0: Good morning. I am so ready for spring to finally come. I mean, aren't you? I'm ready for short sleeves and sunshine, grilling outdoors on the patio, flowers and bushes blooming, sleeping with the windows open. I am so ready for that. And I'm ready for Easter, too, Resurrection Day, ready to celebrate Jesus' rising from the dead in victory. It's hard to believe that Easter is only three weeks away. And in that brief window, we're going to do a mini-series of messages called Crux. Crux is the Latin word that literally means cross. But in English, crux has come to mean the, the heart or the center of something, like the crux of the matter. The crux is the essence, the core. And so, the, so each of the messages in this mini-series will look at a particular ancient word that helps us understand what is at the heart, the center, the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And today's word is kiri, which means Lord one of the most common titles people gave to Jesus in the Gospels. 108 times he is called Kyrie, Lord. Jesus also used that word in his parables, where Kyrie is often translated as master. But Jesus also used the word Kyrie to talk about himself, like in our passage for this morning. Three verses from Jesus' teaching in what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 21. Jesus says, Recently, I came across a phrase that I want to share with you. It was disruptive moment. Disruptive moment. I came across it in a book written by Gordon McDonald where he uses the phrase to describe the way God works in people's lives, that, that often God comes to us most clearly through disruptive moments. A disruptive moment describes an event where your world kind of shifts something happens it's usually unexpected but afterwards you realize your life is different a disruptive moment is a sudden awareness that that something has changed you were going this way and then all of a sudden now you're going this way your perspective on life on yourself your perspective on God somehow it shifts and you know you can't go back Disruptive moments also happen not just to individuals but also to cultures. A a good example of a disruptive moment would be like way back in the 16th century when Copernicus and Galileo came along with their new theories about how the sun was really the center of the solar system. Copernicus called it heliocentrism as opposed to geocentrism, helio meaning the sun and geo meaning the earth. That got everybody upset. To us now, it seems foolish that people believe that the earth stood still and the planets and the stars, you know, revolved around us, but try to grasp how difficult it would have been for people to change their way of thinking about the structure of the whole universe. When when they looked up at the stars and saw the movement of the heavens, they assumed that from their vantage point, it was the stars that were moving, not the earth beneath their feet. For them to believe that they were on this big ball of dirt that was actually spinning through space, that would require a totally radical mental shift from one center to another. It was very unsettling because it called into question other cherished beliefs. People started asking uncomfortable questions. If the earth isn't the center of the universe, as we've been told, then what else have we got wrong? The leaders of the Roman Catholic Church back then and the government, which in Italy at that time was the same thing, this upset their credibility and challenged their power. The world as they knew it was threatened by this change, this shift of center. No wonder the advocates of heliocentrism were attacked and labeled as lunatics and imprisoned, threatened, and punished. The shift in what was at the center of the solar system, that was a disruptive moment. Jesus was the master of the disruptive moment. He had this way of taking people by surprise, totally upsetting their way of thinking. He'd be telling a nice little story or teaching or some topic and then wham, out of the blue, the story would just pivot 180 degrees and he would say something that would take everyone by surprise. It often shocked people, often offended them, infuriated them. People frequently walked away from Jesus in a huff because of his disruptive talk. Jesus was the master of the disruptive moment because every encounter with Jesus would eventually lead back to this one single issue. What's at the center of your life? Jesus was not afraid to challenge people by asking, what's the center of your life? Because if it isn't me, then you're in trouble. And he never diluted or wavered from that message because it was an invitation to life, to life as it should be lived, to be connected with your creator as you were designed to, to receive from God mercy and love and grace and an interchange of heart. And Jesus taught that the only way to receive this kind of life as it should be was through a surrender to him, a trusting in him, a surrender of self to the lordship of Jesus. The lordship of Jesus, that's the crux, that's the core. That's the main thing. There's nothing more important than that in all the Bible. If you miss the lordship of Christ, then, then you've really missed it all. This morning's word, kiri, is the biblical Greek word we translate as lord. It's an ancient root meaning that was with a, a, something to do with a sense of power or force or unlimited strength that was applied to people who had power of one kind and of another. A hero who saves, a, a king who rules, a general who commands. Either through the force of their personality, or the title, or their position, Kyrie was applied to those who exercised some type of superior authority over others. Over the last few weeks, we've been on a journey through the book of Daniel. we talked about how the people of Israel came under the military control and the cultural influence of ancient Greece, starting with Alexander the Great. And as they came under the influence of Greek culture, they had to translate their Hebrew language and scriptures into the Greek language and one of the most common words for God used in the Hebrew scriptures was the word Adonai. Adonai got translated into Greek as Kiri as Lord so in the Greek version of the Old Testament which is called the Septuagint every time the word Adonai appeared it was translated as Kiri because on a cosmic level Adonai is the hero who saves the king who rules the general who commands. But not only that, but the most sacred name for God in the Old Testament, the name that the Jewish people wouldn't even say out loud, Yahweh. When that word appeared in the text, it was also translated as Kiri. Yahweh was the name God used when Moses, uh, back in chapter 3 of Exodus, remember the story, Moses is a fugitive. He's on the run, not only from the Egyptians, but he's also running away from his calling from God to be the deliverer of the Jewish people from under Pharaoh. Eventually he marries, he's working for his father-in-law, Jethro as a shepherd, and one day he's out in the mountains with the sheep and he sees this bush that's on fire, which in the desert was pretty unusual to begin with, but the bush doesn't burn up, it just keeps burning, it's perpetually lit, so he goes to investigate and God speaks to him. Verbally he hears God call his name and then God lays the call on him to go back to Egypt and to lead the Jewish people out of captivity. And then in verse 13, Moses says this. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's Yahweh. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am Yahweh has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, "Say to the Israelites, 'The I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent you to me. Has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation.' So Yahweh, the very name of God, and the more common name for God, Adonai, they go, both get translated into the Greek as Kiri, as Lord." So in Jesus' day, you could call someone kiri and mean it as simply a title of respect for a powerful person, a wealthy landowner, an influential community leader. But there was a whole other level to the meaning of the word. Because when it was used of Jesus, it is kiri, raised to the power of infinity. It is a cosmic word, the biggest word possible. The word that identified Jesus was the most sacred Jewish word for the very name of God. For Jesus to use this word to describe himself, for Jesus to allow others to use this name in reference to him, that was no small thing. And Jesus pulled no punches in applying that name to himself. And that's what shocked and offended and infuriated so many people. John 10, read, here it says this. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus was not afraid to apply that big cosmic, that ultimate word to himself, and for people to recognize him as the Lord. That was a disruptive moment, because if Jesus is Lord in the ultimate sense of the world, then he deserves and demands of you Your full and total commitment. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus wasn't interested in people who could mouth the word Lord. People who could intellectually acknowledge him as Lord. He wanted, he demanded authenticity. Full exposure, total commitment. He constantly challenged people by asking these disruptive questions. Where are you dying to self so that you can raise me up? Are you willing to sacrifice yourself, your ambitions, your relationships in order to serve me? In all of your life, am I first place? Am I on the throne of your life because you cannot serve two masters? He didn't allow people to neatly compartmentalize their lives into different slices of the pie. A religious piece over here and a family slice over there, a work piece here, a fun piece over there. No, he wanted it all. If he was truly Lord, he wants it all. As Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, once said Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And Jesus never diluted that message. You probably don't remember a guy named Robert Courtney. He was a pharmacist in Kansas City. In 2002, he was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in federal prison. His crime? He got caught diluting the medication of cancer patients in order to make a profit. Over a period of 9 years he diluted an estimated 98,000 prescriptions of medications affecting about 4,200 patients. At least 17 of them died after receiving diluted chemo treatments. He made about 19 million dollars from the fraud. After his conviction he was named as a defendant in about 300 uh, civil suits for fraud and wrongful death, and lost judgments in the amount of $2.2 billion. Of course, he'll never be able to repay. But why such a severe penalty? Because he was entrusted with the responsibility of handing out life-saving medications. Jesus never diluted his words because it was and is a life-saving message of hope and redemption. And unfortunately, there are too many pastors and churches who dilute this message of the Lordship of Christ. Maybe they're afraid they're going to turn people off or turn people away, that they're kind of content with having less than really committed people. And so they set the bar pretty low. And Jesus cannot be happy about that. Because he set the bar for discipleship very high. He set the standards for being one of his followers very high. It costs you everything. Everybody's life is centered on something. What's at the center of yours? Does the image of a person, a thing, a goal, a dream pop into mind, or maybe it's your own reflection? What is really the main thing for you? Among your long list of priorities, there has to be something that's at the top. What would you be most concerned about, most passionate about, most worried about? Or as C.J. Mahaney asks, what is it that defines you? Think of it this way. If your name was listed in the dictionary, what definition would follow the phonetic pronunciation of your name? Would it be words about your family, your possessions, your hobbies, or your talents, your accomplishments? What is it that actually defines you? What are you known for? Maybe your life doesn't even have a single focus. Maybe you're chasing too many things. Maybe your inner self is constantly shifting to find you know, the next thing, the current tra- trend, and you're just kind of zigzagging through life On which way to go, kind of like a squirrel running down from one side of the road to the other, not sure who you are, not sure what is the center of your life. The gospel has always been about this question because Jesus invites us to experience a change of center even more radical than the Copernican movement from geocentrism to heliocentrism. He invites us to discover a new kind of life where Christ himself becomes the very center of our existence a Christ-centered life, a radical shift of life focus off of self or people worship or the worship of material things to the worship of the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ. That's what this church is all about, helping people discover and experience this movement to a Christ-centered life. We even use that phrase on our motto. It's on our sign, our letterhead, Christ-centered, people-focused. And What's it mean to be Christ-centered? It's got to be more than just a, Christ, uh, a catchphrase. The word should mean something. Each of us needs to experience our own disruptive moment. A paradigm shift happens when we realize that the world does not revolve around us, and we become people who begin to organize our lives around Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Let me give you one example. Back in the 1930s, there was a guy named Whitaker Chambers. He was an American writer and a newspaper editor. He was also a spy for the Soviet Union. Eventually, he defected from communism, and he became a very passionate Christian. And he wrote about his disruptive moment. It was the moment in his life when God broke through the hardness of his heart. It happened when he was holding his newborn daughter for the very first time. Let me read you what he wrote. My eyes came to rest on the delicate convolutions of her ear, those intricate, perfect little ears. The thought passed through my mind, no, these ears were not created by any chance coming together of atoms in nature, which is the communist or secular view. They could only have been created by an immense design. The thought was involuntary and unwanted. I crowded it out of my mind, but I never wholly forgot, forgot it or the occasion. I did not know that at that moment the finger of God was first laid on my forehead. That's how God broke through to him, through the gentle curve of his daughter's ear. His biographer said that he substituted his passion for communism with a passion for Christ. Jesus said that being a disciple, a follower, has to have an impact on the way that you live. It begins with an attitude change, but it leads to behavior change. A switch from a consumer approach to God, which asks, you know, what can Jesus do for me? To a disciple approach, which asks, Jesus, what can I do for you? In today's scripture, Jesus is making that distinction between those who are casual and those who are committed. Contrast the word says with the word does. We live in a time when people are seemingly increasingly comfortable with separating what they say they believe from how they actually live. We have somehow convinced ourselves that Our beliefs are sincere, even if they have no impact on how we live. For Jesus, a disciple, is a follower. A disciple makes decisions every day to follow Jesus and not to go in some other direction. A disciple is intentional about his or her relationship with Christ, intentional about serving him. Biblical belief is more than something we confess with our lips. It's something we confess with our lives. In other words, you can say, Lord, Lord, And not live, Lord, Lord. Jesus cares about how you live, and he made no apologies for his strong words. He wanted people to count the cost, to be clear about what they are signing up for. He is Lord of all. Imagine a family going away on an extended holiday. They hire a young couple to house sit while they're away and before they leave, they give them a notebook of pages with detailed instructions for taking care of the house, you know, when to feed the pets, how to water the plants, how much food to give the cat, where is the tr- which trash day and which is recycling, where the shutoff val- valve is for the water main, telephone numbers for repairmen and plumbers and all the rest. Imagine when they come home, they find the garage is just completely full of trash. The toilets are overflowing, the basement is flooded, all the plants are dead. There's a patch of freshly upturned dirt in the backyard with a little sign that says R.I.P. Snowball. The house-sitting couple says how much they enjoyed the instruction book. They read it every day, highlighted some of the parts, even committed to memory their favorite passages. If you were those homeowners, you would physically throw them out on their ear, tear up your check. For Jesus, it's what you do that counts. True faith leads to action. Let me share an email I received this week from Dick Griggs, who leads our involvement with the local prison ministry. See if this makes sense about faith and action and serving Christ in the way that we live. During a phone call from Chaplain Larry at the East uh, Jersey State Prison, he said, You have to hear this. As most of you know, PCNP is one of a privileged group of churches who are invited to worship with the men at the East Jersey State Prison. Most of the other churches are small congregations in the neighborhoods from which the inmates come. But one of those churches is not made up of folks with whom the prisoners would be familiar. It's a small Korean church in Monmouth County. At their last visit to EJSP, the pastor told Larry that the church was struggling financially. And he asked for prayer. Larry shared that prayer request with a few of the uh, prisoners. And a few days later, Larry got a call from the Korean pastor who said, the church secretary just called me into her office saying, you're not going to believe this. Her desk was covered with envelopes. Each one had just a few dollars in it. All the envelopes came from the guys in the prison. Incarcerated men get an allowance from the state, which is barely enough to cover the cost of their toiletries. Those who are lucky enough to have prison jobs get paid less than a dollar an hour does that make sense faith turns into action my prayer is that our souls would awaken to that kind of relationship with Christ where faith is more than just words where the lordship of Christ actually leads us to sacrifice something don't waste another day with a watered down diluted faith it's 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 not worth it experience The life-giving, soul-satisfying relationship with Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful that you couple mercy with the call to discipleship because none of us can do this perfectly. But Lord, our intention is to serve you. Our focus, our direction in life is to come closer to you, not move farther away. And we know, Lord, we do that through steps of obedience, steps of surrender. And if there's corners of our life, Lord, where we know we've not surrendered them to you, Lord, may you convict us of that this morning. If there are areas where we like to separate our faith out from who we are in different situations, Lord, would you convict us of that? Help us to be authentic disciples, authentic people, wholly integrating our faith into life, Lord, so that others would know to whom we belong. And it's you, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.